Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I want to thank uh, Bart and TJ, two of our uh, elder team, and uh, for their leadership and their care. And we just want you to know that Molly and I add our, uh, our, our care, our love, our prayers for Joe and Tiffany and their children. Well, um, by the way, I want to comment about all the people that are watching online. Uh, a greeting to each of you. I found out last night that there are some, it's likely that there are some people from Poland who are participating in our service and might even be doing it every Sunday. So just a, a shout out to you guys over in Poland as you join with us uh, in worship this morning. Well, hey, check out your bulletin right below the scripture reading. There's a, there's a photograph there. You look at that, and some of you probably saw this beautiful uh, basilica, and, and you ask yourself the question, well, is this kind of the design for Lake Baldwin Church's future building? Uh, what, is, uh, what is going on here? And uh, you say, but then you may look at it, and you say, well, it looks, it looks rather gaudy. And uh, it does look gaudy. The reason for that is that this uh, cathedral, this temple, this church was designed by a guy by the name of Gaudi. And thus we get the word gaudy. But Gaudi uh, was a Spanish uh, guy that was, um, began building this building, which is called the Sagrada Familia. Sagrada Familia. Familia means family. Sagrada would be sacred or holy family. And this, this place of worship, he started working on it in 1882. And it is still under construction, and will, it will be finished in 2026. So just so you know, uh, Gaudi himself um, sadly died in, I think, 1926. So that would be the completion, would be 100 years after his death. He died in 1926. He was struck by a tram in Barcelona. But you're like, you're like Mike, why are you talking about this, this amazing building, which is, which is beautiful. It's right in the heart of Barcelona, Spain, by the way. And that's it right there. It's, it's pretty amazing. But one of the things I want to, uh, that has, is really inspiring about this particular building is you're looking at, I think, what might be the front of it, but on the other three sides, what they call facades, they have scenes from the gospel story. So the first facade is called the nativity facade, the nativity fa facade, and it's all about the birth of Christ, it's all about uh, the incarnation, God becoming man, and that is the nativity facade. Then you go around and there's a second facade which is called the passion facade, the passion facade. You might remember a movie called the Passion of the Christ. That refers to that holy week when uh, Jesus Christ suffered and died and rose from the dead. So it's the, it's the Passion facade. And so there's all this architecture 
around just the beauty of these events, the nativity facade, the passion facade, but there is a third facade in uh, the Sagrada Familia, and it's called the glory facade. In fact, it is not completed yet. It is the last one that they are working on. It is called the glory facade, and what that's about is the ascension of Christ. And that is our topic from Ephesians chapter 4 today. We're going to talk about the ascension of Christ. And just as the story is still being completed on that basilica, the Sagrada Familia, I have a suspicion that for all of us in this room, for many of us, the, we're very familiar with the Nativity, we're very familiar with Passion Week, but, but my guess is that we are less familiar and maybe talk less about the ascension of Christ. In fact, one writer said this about the ascension of Christ. He said, it, must, it may be the most important doctrine that you never think about. The ascension of Christ may very well be the most important doctrine that you never think about it. So we're going to talk about it today. Now, I want you to look back at this passage, if you would, please, at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7, because we want to begin by introducing the, uh, the passage to you and setting it up with this verse. You might recall that last week we talked about the unity of the church from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, but suddenly Paul changes course at this point. And you'll notice in verse 7 he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. An amazing verse here. First you notice it says that grace was given to each one of us. And so Paul now, rather than talking just about unity, he's talking about variety. Grace was given to each one of us. And he's saying that everybody in the church, every individual who's a follower of Christ, has a very significant part in building, not the Sagrada Familia, but building the, the temple of the worship of God that is known as the church. And we all have a very significant part in promoting the unity of the church and promoting the growth of the church. Even as, as Barton T.J. shared, we promote the purity and peace of the church. But we all have a very significant part in that. And it and you might wonder, well, how can we fulfill the roles that God has for us? Notice it says, grace was given to each one of us. What does the word grace mean? Well, you're familiar with saving grace, the grace of free salvation, salvation apart from works. But what this is talking about is serving grace, serving grace. God gives us strength for it, and he says it's according to the measure of Christ's gift. So God has given each of us grace to serve him and whatever he's called you to do, and he has given us spiritual gifts. Now, how does this come about? Well, the backstory is the ascension of Christ. And so as we talk through this passage, I want to I point out three things for us this morning about the, the ascension of Christ. First of all, what, what is even meant by the ascension of Christ? Secondly, how does the ascension of Christ display his victory over evil? And then third, how does the ascension of Christ empower each one of us? So let's talk, first of all, 
about what is the ascension of Christ. What are we talking about when we refer to the ascension of Christ? Well, look at verses 8 through 10. Let's just take a look at that right now because I want to take you right to where Paul goes into it. We just read verse 7, but check out verse 8. It says, therefore it says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So when he ascended on high, it's referring to the ascension of Christ. Apparently this doctrine is very important to this text and very important to Paul. Now let's go on and look at verse 9. It says, in saying that he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So what, what do we mean by the ascension of Christ? What is really going on here? Well, to get the story of the ascension of Christ, we would go to, have to go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm just going to read it to you because it describes the ascension. It says, and when he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, all these disciples, all these people that had believed on him, as they were looking on, it says he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. That is the ascension of Christ. You know, it's, uh, one of the things I've really enjoyed in the past year or two is the fact that Cape Canaveral is now having launches again, having manned space flight, having SpaceX launches. So whenever there's one, especially a nighttime launch, it is so beautiful to just look out to the east and watch the ascent of a SpaceX rocket into the sky. It is so beautiful. And that rocket is going up and up and up, and it is taken up into the clouds. That's, that is an ascent. In fact, in rockets, that's known as the ascent phase. When a, when a rocket returns to Earth, it is known as the descent phase. So what's going on as it relates to Christ? Christ was taken up in glory. He was taken up into the clouds. As Acts chapter 1 says, what is happening there? Well, as we read from Paul, as we read in this passage, the ascension of Christ was preceded by the descent of Christ. So what we, what we know from the word of God is that Christ first, before he ascended, he descended. What is that talking about? It's talking about three things. Number one, it's talking about that nativity facade on the Sagrada Familia that we talked about. It's talking about the fact that God became a man in Christ and he was born in a manger. He was born a baby and he lived a perfect life his teachings, his miracles, all of that. That was the descent. So first of all, Christ descended to earth in the incarnation. And that is no small thing. That is no small thing for Christ, who has existed for all of eternity, to leave the glories of heaven, to leave the, the palaces of heaven, to leave the riches of heaven, to leave the fellowship of his Father, and to come down to earth as a man, laying aside his powers, laying aside his privileges, Christ came down and he descended. But there's a second thing about, there's a second level to the descent of Christ. Because after his perfect life, his teachings, his miracles, his suffering and all that he did, he descended to another level. And that was the level of death 
on a cross. Now why did he do that? The Bible teaches that he died for our sins. What that means, Christ was sinless. He did not need to die, but we deserved to suffer the punishment of death because of our sins. The Bible teaches that Christ was our substitute. So the second level of descent he not only descended to the earth, but he also descended into death and descended into the grave. That's the second level. He's gone down, he's gone down, and then down one more time. The third level of descent was not just that he died physically, but he also drank of the cup of God's wrath in our place and as our substitute. So in the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into Hades. He descended. He went as low as he could go, and he tasted the wrath of God and the pains of hell for each one of us so that we could be set free so that we would not have to. So that's what happened in the descent of Christ. What happened in the, ascent, the, the, the ascension of Christ that we're reading here is first of all, God raised him from the dead. He was dead, he was buried, he was in the grave. The Bible teaches, in fact, in Ephesians 1, but that by the power of God, Christ, who was dead, was raised out from among the dead. But not only that, he was not only raised, but he ascended into heaven, much greater than that SpaceX rocket, and he ascended into heaven, and then he was seated at the right hand of God, and he sits at the right hand of God now, and he governs his church, and he governs the world, and as Paul says in this passage, he descended down, 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 and he ascended so that he might fill all things. And so you'll remember the song that we sang this morning, he has no rival. He has no enemy that is above him. He has no, no power that is above him. Christ has filled all things, even as verse 6 in Ephesians 4 said that God was above all and in all and through all. Christ, the God-man, has now filled all things because of the ascension of Christ. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. I mean, we should savor that part of the gospel. We should savor this could be the greatest doctrine that we never think about. Now, let me go on to the implications of this for us because you say, Mike, man, that's amazing. It's amazing. He descended down, down, down. He ascended and he went up and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean to you and me? Why is that relevant to you and me? Well, that leads us to the second question is how does the ascension display the victory of Christ over evil forces? So take a look at this. Take a look at Ephesians 4 again in verse 8. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He led a host of captives. What an amazing story this is. What do you mean by this host of captives where all the way from the beginning there has been in the story of redemption a great cosmic conflict. It says in Genesis 3.15 that there would be a serpent that would, that would, uh, would bite the heel of the descendant of Eve, the seed of the woman, but that he would crush the serpent, and so that serpent, that Satan of old, and then all of the expressions of the cosmic conflict 
throughout the centuries and throughout the story of the Bible, there is this great cosmic conflict. And the Bible teaches that in the ascension, Christ led forth a host of captives to demonstrate his victory over all evil forces. Now, that's a lot to think about. That is a lot to take in. Now, I want to ask you guys a question about this because uh, you're going to wonder how this fits in with your life. How many of you in the room, in fact, I just want to ask you to raise your hand on this question. How many of you in the room are um, glass is half empty people? You're going around thinking if something can go wrong, it will. Raise your hand if you're a glass half empty person. Just, you just, you just if, it, if something can go wrong, it will. That is called Murphy's Law. If something can go wrong, it will. Now, how many of you in the room are glass half full people? You kind of look on the bright side. Okay, you're kind of an optimistic person. Now, what I want to say is that both of you are right. According to the Bible, both of you are right. If you're a glass half empty person, if you believe in a uh, Murphy's Law, I want to encourage you that you are not crazy to believe in that because the Bible teaches it because of the fall of humanity, because of the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there is at work in the world a, a theological Murphy's Law. There is stuff that gets broken. There is injustice in the world. There are mean people. There is hatred. There is all of those, all of those bad things are true. But the Bible teaches that there is something else that's true. And so those of you that see the world or see the cup as half full, you are not crazy either. Because we have a Christ who has ascended, who has, who has, who has earned victory over evil forces, and he is working out that victory in the world. But you are not crazy. He has won the victory. Now, uh, there's a place in 1 John that says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now think about this for a second because you're gonna ask this question, well, if he's won the victory, if he's taken captivity captive, why is there still evil in the world? Why is there still injustice in the world? Why doesn't God do something about it? The answer to that question is that he has done something about injustice. He is doing something about justice, and he will do something about injustice and evil. He did it at the cross and the ascension. He is working through the church now in a mop-up operation, extending his kingdom in the world. Matthew 16, 18 says, I will, Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and it is for that reason you guys, it is for that reason that we can be hopeful in the midst of, of adversity. You know, there is a, um, but he has done something, he is doing something through the church today, and he will do something to put an end to all evil when Christ returns. So he has won the victory, he is winning the victory, and he will win the ultimate victory when Satan and death and all evil forces will be destroyed. The ascension of Christ is the beginning of that. You know, I read a book when I was a young Christian. Uh, some of you older folks would remember this book called Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. 
But I want to tell you something. Because of the ascension, he may be alive, but he is not well. You know why he is not well? Because what God does is God takes bad things. He takes evil things. And according to Genesis 50, 20, he takes evil and he turns it for good. Romans 8, 28, Bart Johnson's favorite verse, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He is gaining the victory. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. I'll tell you another way he's gained the victory is because you are here. He has saved you. He has rescued you. He has, set, he was, has taken the chains off of you. He has set you free from the penalty of sin, and he has rescued you. Colossians 1 says that in your salvation, Christ has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. That is an incredible loss for evil forces that are in the world. He has rescued you. He has redeemed you, and he has saved you. Christ, that is Christ's victory. I'll tell you another thing that's happening, another thing that he's doing. He has, he, according to the Bible, Christ has come and given you a new heart. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and he is at work changing you. Now you know in, you, in your heart there is a tug of war between the sinful part of you and the, the part of you that where the Holy Spirit is working to overcome sin. But the Bible teaches in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Christ is gaining the victory. That, these are just a few of the elements of the victory that is based upon the ascension of Christ when he led captivity captive. It is, it is what makes me realistic. I am a realist, but it is realist, but it is also what makes me hopeful. And uh, I wonder, Willie Nelson, the singer, said that we will raise up our glasses against evil forces. Well, that's a cool song, but if you're a believer in Christ, if you believe in the ascension of Christ, we will raise up our glasses against evil forces. One more thing about the ascension. First of all, what is the ascension of Christ? Second, how does it display his victory over sin and evil in the world? But the third thing is how does the ascension empower each one of us? Now, you guys, this is really cool because we've talked about that part of what's going on in the ascension, what Paul is saying here, notice verse, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us, and that's why it says the ascension. So what, what did he do for the church? What did he do for you? We know that he's taken captivity captive, but what else did he do? Well, the book of Acts there is a story in Acts chapter 2 about what's known as Pentecost. It is the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church. When the apostle Peter is preaching on that day, he says, what you're looking at, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is because God has exalted Jesus to the right hand of the Father and given him the Holy Spirit, and Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. So Acts 1.8 says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the, Judea and to the remotest parts of the earth. What's going on? The church is God's plan 
for a mop-up operation to put into, into practice the victory that Christ has won over the forces of evil. To go, to go and set the captives free. He has poured out a spirit on you, on me, on this church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. But there's a second thing. He has poured out his Holy Spirit. But look back at, look back at verse 8. It says, he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts. He gave gifts to men. So he empowers you, not just by putting, pouring out the Holy Spirit on you, but he has equipped everybody in this room with a spiritual gift. Now we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but everybody in this room has a spiritual gift. Now I'll tell you what's cool about that. This could revolutionize your approach to church. In fact, I agree with stuff Martin TJ said about you guys. Uh, God has blessed this church. We have so many people in this church that are using their spiritual gifts. And in American Christianity, it is easy for the church to be a consumer enterprise. We show up, we're entertained. If it's cool music or cool preaching, good program, whatever it might be, and then we go back. That is not the vision of God for the church. The vision of God for the church is that all of us are part of Christ's body, all of us have the Holy Spirit, and all of us are equipped with spiritual gifts. So he gives some sample ones, and I'm gonna begin to tie it up with this, but I want you to look at verse 12. We'll talk more about this next week, but verse 12, excuse me, verse 11. Verse 11, think about this, the ascension. He descended, he ascended, and it says that he gave gifts to men, so what did he give to the church? What are our Christmas gifts as a church that he's given to us? Well, he just mentions a few in verse 11. And he gave the apostles and the prophets. These were the foundation stones of the the great temple for the worship of God in the early church. And then throughout history, though, look at what he's done. He has given evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. In fact, it goes on to say that these leadership offices in the church are given to equip the saints, all of you, for the work of the ministry. But I just want to notice a couple things here. Think about the gifts that God has given us as a church. Last night, I was uh, Molly and I were with some friends for our community group, and uh, there's, a, there's a person in our community group. She's a woman. I believe that she has a spiritual gift of of evangelism. I believe that she is an evangelist. And they were just telling a very simple story. She was out getting her nails done, you know, and she starts feeling all all concerned for this this gal that's just doing her nails. And so she just, she couldn't help herself. I want to invite her to church. And so that person may show up at church, but this is a person uh, where God has given the gift of evangelism, and they're doing what God has equipped them to do. And there might be others of you in that category. It doesn't mean that we, all of us can make a difference, all of us can share our faith, but some people lead us with these gifts. Look at another one that's here that I think is, uh, is so cool. It says, verse 11 again, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So what's he talking about the shepherds there? Sometimes it uses the word pastor. Well, a pastor is a shepherd, but when it uses the word shepherd, it reminds us of 1 Peter 5 that God has given elders to the church 
to shepherd the flock. And this is what gives me such appreciation. Bart and TJ, who are up here, along with the other elders that were not up here, are people that have been um, nominated by you because you have recognized their spiritual gifts. They have been trained and equipped as elders. They have been elected by you. And we believe that through the laying on of hands, we recognize the spiritual gifts, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, and that these guys are gifts to the church. And we're experiencing that right now. We're experiencing their, their love, their care, their leadership, and I am so grateful to God for giving us the gifts of these shepherds and these elders, not just at this time, but all the time, the way they shepherd us, the way they care. Their heart is to shepherd and care for individuals, to shepherd the church, to help guide the church in many ways. And then it mentions in verse 11, teachers. A lot of you are gifted teachers. All of these are, are, are roles and offices that are designed to equip all of us to use our gifts to equip all of us for the work of ministry. The ascension of Christ, that's what this passage is talking about. This is a powerful, powerful doctrine, and this is what Christ has given to us. Now, let me suggest a few application thoughts as we wind down here. Um, how does this really affect you now? What are some things that you guys can do as you think about the ascension of Christ? I want to give you four things real quick. Number one, first thing is that the world is a mess. All you had to do is look at January 6th, our nation's capital. The world is a mess, and yet what the ascension teaches is that Christ is on his throne, and he fills all things, and he is not caught off guard by any disaster, by anything that can go wrong, he is not caught, caught off guard because of the ascension. Christ is on his throne. Number two, the second thing I would challenge you guys with in light of the ascension is don't give up. Don't give up. Some of you come to points in your life where you feel like quitting. Don't give up on that friendship. Don't give up on that marriage. Don't give up on that ministry that God has called you to. Don't, don't give up on the church. Don't give up on your job where you're tempted to quit because of the ascension of Christ, because he fills all things. Don't give up. We are not working toward victory. We are working from victory. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. I'm going to give you a third thought. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on yourself because Christ has given you a new heart. The ascended Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit. Some of us in this room struggle with besetting sins and with character issues and struggles that are inside our hearts, things that we do that we say that hurt people, areas where we keep getting off track in our relationship with God. I would say to you, based upon the ascension of Christ, do not give up on yourself and what God can do in your life. And then here's the fourth application of the ascension for us, and that is to care for the wounded, to care for the wounded. The church, according to this doctrine of the ascension and the rest of the Bible, the church, not just our church, but churches all around the world, the church is the point of the spear of Christ's mop-up operation in the world 
and we're still waging and winning that spiritual battle, but people get hurt because we still live in a broken world. So always, always care for the wounded. You know, a lot of you might look at your life and you might look at the world and you might look at things that come up that surprise you and you wonder what's going on. And so I close with a quote from Tolkien and the Fellowship of the Ring and a conversation between Frodo and Gandalf. A couple of sentences, listen to, listen to this. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. You might say that sometimes. I wish it had not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, the times in which we live. You might be heartbroken about the times in which we live. So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with these times, the times that have been given to us today. And I say to you, as I've said before, there's no other time I would rather be alive than right now and no other place I'd rather be than Lake Baldwin Church because of the ascension of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, these are truths that are even too great for us to take in, too great to comprehend. But we thank you that they're in your word. They thank you, we thank you that these truths are there for us to believe, to apply, to obey. We praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We praise you for all of the beautiful gifts that you give to your church. Would you sustain today the brokenhearted, the wounded, those that are tempted to give up? Would you sustain them by your power? It's in Jesus' name, the ascended one, that we pray. Amen.